eternal truth. They're, they're the words of God put to music often. They're a synopsis of the Word of God. They're an explanation of the Word of God put to music. If you take an old hymn book, I recommend the Trinity hymn book. Flip it, and each hymn has a, a verse of Scripture that has been either by the author assigned to that hymn or from the editors of the hymn book, they have assigned it to the hymn. Okay? A second thing that makes the hymns great, the old hymns great, is the agreement of the church of God for hundreds of years to the fact that they are useful for God's people. That can't be denied. There is a greatness to the hymns because for hundreds of years, that last song we sang, written in the 1700s, has been sung continuously in the church of God. Now, for, for nearly 300 years, believers have been giving their amen to the doctrine of that song, saying that is a true song, that is a useful song. So it's not that modern music is useless. There are many useful songs, good songs, and I believe songs that will go into the ages. But I, I can't help but think, you know, um, and I won't name any because that will get me in trouble. It will be somebody's favorite song. But I, can rem I, I am getting old enough finally to remember songs that we sang with great passion 10 years ago. And everybody said, that's one that will last forever. That, we'll be singing that song in 50, we'll be singing that song in 100 years. And nobody sings it anymore. And so... They're great because they affirm God's Word and they repeat to us God's Word and they explain to us God's Word, but they are also great because the church worldwide has said these songs are worthy of your attention. Sing them. So don't deny the greatness of hymns. No matter how much you love modern music, I think we need to keep writing good music, but don't throw out your hymn book. Keep it. Sing from it with your children. Read the words to it. Even if you don't sing them, read them. They bring good doctrine to us. They teach good doctrine to us. Okay, a second thing to say before the sermon. We're going to take up a, a one-time offering at the end of the service. And it is for the, uh, the purchase of turkeys for the Thanksgiving meal that Renovation Ministries will do next week down at, uh, in West Anniston. Okay? You can make a check out, and all you have to do is write that check to Grace Fellowship, and we will pass the plates at the end of the service and pick that up. You can give cash or check. We don't take credit card, although you can put your credit card in there if you choose. We'll just make up the rest of what we needed for the offering off your credit card and give it back. No, cash or check. You don't have to write renovation ministries or anything on the check because it's being taken up separately, accounted for separately, okay? Just, just know that. But we're going to do that at the end of the service. So if you didn't come prepared, get prepared and take part in this. It's an opportunity for us to help those 500 families have a turkey uh, and dressing meal for their Thanksgiving because we're all going to enjoy ours at least once, twice, or three times, okay? All right? And so I wanted to make that announcement to you. We'll take the, that up at the end. Psalm 38. Psalm 38, and we are nearing the close of our series in the Psalm. First book of the Psalter. 
This psalm is written by David. We're not given any historical background. We, in fact, don't have any story recorded for us in history in the Scriptures that match the description of what David describes as his physical condition in this psalm. His physical condition in this psalm is, is dire. He, he believes he's dying. We're going to see that. He thinks he's not going to survive. But we shouldn't let that bother us that we don't have a historical note in the writings of the history of Israel about this particular event. And this is why, one reason anyway, without modern medicine, without intervention by antibiotics or cleaning practices and these kind of things, sickness was rampant. I mean, people got pneumonia and they laid around coughing up their lungs, fluid from internals, got sick, running high fevers, and people just assumed that guy's going to die, right? And sometimes God moved and they got well, and sometimes they, they went on to be with the Lord. So sickness, my point is, at this great level, to us would be noteworthy. If somebody in this congregation was laying on their deathbed with some terrible disease, we would know it because it's so rare, really, in our day that somebody suffers for long periods of time like this. In their day, people would have been sick constantly. They would have not really made any mention of it because they wouldn't have thought it was newsworthy. But it definitely was newsworthy to David. This psalm has been put in with the psalms of penitence or repentance. And that's a good place for it. It matches Psalm 6 in many ways. Psalm 6, Psalm 38, almost identical. The first verses are identical. In the Hebrew, they're the exact same prayer. All right? There is a little difference in Psalm 38, and we're going to look at it today. In the outline, we could say that this psalm is a prayer, description, prayer kind of psalm. He prays in Psalm 38, verse 1. And then in verses 2 through 8, he gives a description of suffering because of his sin. And then in verse 9, he offers up a prayer again. And then verses 10 through 14, he gives a description of his mental suffering because of his sickness. And then in verse 15, he offers another prayer to God. And then in verse 16 through 20, he gives a description of his enemies who are attacking him while he suffers physically and mentally. And then 21 and 22 end the psalm with a great prayer unto God again. So it's prayer, description, prayer, description, prayer. It, it, it follows a pattern for us that makes it easy really for us to break it into parts. This psalm breaks down naturally into an outline. So we look at the first verse and we say, He offers God a prayer of repentance. He pleads with God for mercy. O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. The, the words that stand out in this part are anger and wrath. Here a child of God is, Concerned over the anger and wrath of God. Not in general. Not to those outside. But he's concerned about God's anger and wrath towards himself. Now I want to pause and say we are uncomfortable with this. You're going to be uncomfortable before you leave today. I know you will. Because many of you were uncomfortable the last time this subject came up in the Psalms. You didn't really like to hear that sickness follows as a corrective from the hand of a good God towards His children. A form of discipline 
to bring us to repentance. You didn't like that, many of you. And that's okay. I understand. We're uncomfortable with it because we've been raised in a society that believes that grace means God no longer, no longer deals harshly with His children. We read passages like Romans 8, 1, and we say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we give a hearty amen, and we say, that means I don't suffer anymore physically because of my sin. And that's not what Romans 8, 1 speaks of at all. Romans 8, 1 is talking about eternal condemnation. If you don't take it in that stance, you disregard Hebrews 12, which says God disciplines all of those that He loves. So we need to pause, set aside our prejudices, and look at this honestly. Here is a child of God. Notice He calls Him Lord. He uses the, the word, the covenant name of God. This is not David prior to coming to salvation. This is David probably as a grown man, as a king, because of the description here later. This is David, the apple of God's eye, the one who God has said is a man after my own heart. And he's saying, your anger and wrath concern me because it feels like you're disciplining me, you're rebuking me. From your anger and wrath. The first prayer is a prayer of pleading for God's mercy. For God's giving David not what he deserves. But not giving David the very thing he does deserve. You don't get an excuse from David. Oh yeah, I know I sinned. But, but, but God, you just don't understand the problems that I'm facing. You get from David an honest dealing with his sin. What he's saying here is, I believe... I deserve your anger and your wrath. So please don't give it to me. Too many times in my life and in your life, Christian, we pass over our sin as if it doesn't matter to God. As if He doesn't care anymore because it's all consumed in the blood of Jesus. And so we're forgiven. Have you forgotten that we serve a God who is a consuming fire? Have you forgotten that we serve a God who when Moses' brother and sister mocked him, God struck them with leprosy? They were his children. Aaron was his high priest. And yet God did not hesitate to say, if you mock the man of God that I have put in charge of you, I will punish you. I will discipline you. Listen. The fact that we have come to a new covenant does not mean that we aren't to look at God's actions in both old and new covenant and say God deals seriously with His people over their sin. I want us to take this prayer seriously because I believe that so often my life reflects that I don't think God cares all that much what I do, how I act, whether I behave or whether I just disregard Him. Oh Lord, rebuke me not and discipline me not from your anger and wrath. Well, we follow that prayer with a description of suffering because of sin. Notice that he says in verse 3, It is because of your indignation and because of my sin. And verse 5, Because of my foolishness, my folly, which always in the psalm 
recognizes in the Psalm and Proverbs and the wisdom literature always is a recognition of sinfulness. He's not talking about childishness. He's not talking about out-of-hand statements. He's talking about sinfulness. Because of my sin, because of your indignation against my sin, and because of my foolishness, I'm facing your wrath and anger and discipline and rebuke. Notice that it's not spiritual things that he describes here. It's not just mental anguish. It's not just spiritual turmoil. Notice all of David's complaints here are physical complaint. Notice in verse 3, first part, there is no soundness or wholeness or security or strength left in my flesh. Why? Because of your indignation. Okay, well, there's no health in my bones. Why? Because of my sin. That's as plain as it gets, isn't it? David, child of God, is sick unto death because of his sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester. Why? Because I'm foolish. I'm a sinner. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. This is a physical position that he finds himself in mourning all day. Why? Because from my sides are filled with a burning, indicating an infection has set in, and there is no soundness in my flesh. He's got a high fever. He's burning with the infection. He's suffering on a bed that he thinks is most likely his deathbed, and he's crying out to God, Relieve me because I'm sorry for my sin. I'm feeble. I'm crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Now he brings up, the men, he begins to transition to the mental distress and the spiritual distress that's caused often by physical suffering. We're not saying that all sickness comes from sin, sinfulness, direct sinfulness that you have done. All sickness comes from the overall sinfulness of the world. Without sin, there would be no viruses, there would be no infections, there would be no death, there would be no cancer, there would be no, no people dying from, from pneumonia or from any other ailment. No, the general sinful condition of the world has brought on more and more sickness as the world ages and as it becomes more sinful. We might expect greater disease, not less disease. But this isn't what David's referring to, this general sinfulness of the whole world that has caused the sicknesses of the world. No, this is David speaking about intimate sin. I don't know what sin it is. I think it's so key that God doesn't tell us what historical setting this comes from, nor what sin it is. I think God does that, just my guess, so that every one of us can apply it to our life. So we can say, oh, well, you know, David, you know, he did that terrible thing. I've only done this little thing. God left the sin out of David so that we might focus on our sin. And we might say, I, I could be in this same case. We know that all sin or all sickness is not caused by sin. Let me give you two examples. There's many, but let me give you two. Job 1, verse 21. If we look at Job 
we find in Job a helpful test case that tells us all sickness is not caused by sin. Direct sin that I have committed. Verse, we begin in verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. This is after all the bad report of his dying children and his lost income and crops and capital. He's lost it all. And he fell down and worshipped and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. Blessed the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 22, in all this Job did not what sin nor charge God with wrong. As a matter of fact, earlier in the passage in chapter 1, the description of Job in verse 1 is very key to help us know that what God did in this case was not a direct cause by his sin. What does it say? Job was a blameless and upright man. One who feared God and turned away from evil. Now everything else that happens to him is in the context that he didn't receive these things because of his sin. Why did Job suffer? You see, there can be many causes for sin. There can, I mean sickness. There can be the general, as I said, effect of sin. All of us eventually will get sick and die if the Lord doesn't return prior to that. All of us will. There's that cause. I believe a second cause is directly because of a sin we have committed. We suffer physically to bring us like discipline before the throne of God to repentance so we might be healed from our sickness. God's intent is to correct us and bring us back to himself. A third cause, which I think Job is an example of, and I'm going to give you another example in the New Testament. A third cause for our sickness is so that God might be glorified. God says, I desire to show that I am worthy of praise no matter the condition. No matter the situation. No matter the sickness. doesn't matter. Satan challenged God, didn't he? In our passage of Job, Satan said, Oh yeah, I mean, he praises you, but he's got everything. Begin to take things away from him and see if he still praises your holy name. And God said, Okay, you can have it all. Don't touch his flesh. He took it all. We get the response in verse 21. And Satan comes back before God. And God says, how did it go? Well, yeah, but I mean, you hadn't touched his flesh. Yeah, sure, he'll still praise you because he's not himself sick. And then in chapter 2, God releases Satan again and says, You can touch his flesh, you cannot kill him, but you can take him to the moment of his death. He thinks he may die. He's laying in a trash heap in chapter 2. He's scraping himself with broken potsherds because of his pain from the boils that have popped up all over his flesh. And his wife says, Man, come on, just curse God and die. Verse 10, chapter 2. You speak as one of the foolish or sinful women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil in all this? Job did not sin with his lips. And it's at this moment that God has a trophy of his goodness and his grace and his magnificence that's worthy of worship. It's a victory for God over Satan in the life of Job. That can be the reason for sickness. 
so that as we suffer, the world sees it and says, if they can worship God at this moment, God must be worthy of his worship. It's an evangelistic reason. It's a glory-giving reason. John 9 is the other passage that comes to mind in this way. Flip over to John 9. Just so you don't think that uh, this sickness being um, given by God is limited to the Old Testament. Because I hear that sometimes in arguments. Well, God used to do those kind of things, but he doesn't do those kind of things anymore. I'm not so sure. John 9. Jesus with his disciples. Verse 1, and he passed by. He saw a man that was blind from birth. And his disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Okay. I want to bring something to your attention. I'm sure you saw it. When Jesus gives his answer, he does not say, that's a foolish question. He doesn't rebuke the disciples. He doesn't say, God doesn't work that way anymore. You people are in the old covenant. This is about to be the new covenant. It's not what he says. He answers their question, and the absence of that kind of rebuke, to me, speaks loudly that their question's not off base. It could have been because of sin that this man was born blind. Jesus says, though, in this case, it was not that this man sinned. Or that his parents sinned. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. Sometimes God gives sickness to his people. So that he might be glorified and worshipped through the sickness. So you can have the general cause of sinfulness in the world. That causes people to get disease and die. Has no direct correlation to anything in their particular individual life. You can have sickness, I believe, biblically, and we're going to look at it some more in Psalm 38, that is directly linked to sin in your life. And it is the hand of discipline, not judgment, that brings you to the point of repentance so that God might heal you and restore your health. And thirdly, at least three reasons for sickness, so God might be glorified. So that through the sickness, as you worship God, you give great glory to Him. Because he's worthy to be glorified and praised, even in sickness. I believe here in David's case that he has rightly assessed his life and sees that he is a sinner that has sinned specifically against God and now God has brought physical sickness on him. And what we have in Psalm 38 is the patient prayer of a godly man saying, I know I've sinned, but restrain your anger and wrath and don't bring me to the pit. Let me live. O Lord, verse 9, the second prayer, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. Here David in his prayer turns back after the description of his physical sickness to say to God, I know that you know I'm suffering. I know that you hear me sighing under the weight of this sin. I know that you care. That's basically what he's saying. You're hearing me. I know you are. How many times in your physical sicknesses have you thought, God's not listening to me? If God really loved me, he'd answer my prayer. And here David is, without deliverance, suffering in physical sickness, who's saying, I know you hear me, God. He doesn't judge God by feeble sense. He doesn't judge God by the immediacy of the deliverance 
or the answered prayer. He judges God on God's character. I know that you hear me. I know that you know what I'm going through. You are not far from me. Here David in verse 9 speaks of the intimacy of God with his people even in the hard times. It's not necessarily a feeling in other words. It's a fact. So often in my life when I've faced struggle, sickness, fear has overwhelmed me and I've acted as if and spoken as if God didn't care. I have judged God with feeble, sinful senses. And that's wrong. I've said, if God really cared about me, He'd fix this. He'd answer me. Let me just encourage you that in the day of your suffering, it's not about what you feel. It's about the facts. The world tells you the opposite. If I don't feel like God's close to me, if I don't feel the warm and fuzzy of this moment, then God may, may, may or may not be real. I don't know if he's real or not. He's not working in my life. Let me tell you something. That will lead you to despair. What will keep you from despair in a day of struggle or sickness or plague? Believing the fact that God is near to his people. That he hears me when I pray. That he cares for my deepest sorrows. And we can even begin to quote back to God His very word when we say that Jesus has beckoned for us to come and to cast our cares on Him because He cares for us. We have a caring God. We have a near God. We have a God who hears us when we pray. David's confident of this. I don't think he feels it. I think he knows it. I was explaining to Hannah Grace we went on a date the other day and dates with a pastor that that likes theology, often turn into discussions about theology. Yeah, I know. It's thrilling. But we had our coffee cups, and I started lining them up. I said, baby, the world will tell you that your train of your being works like this. Feelings, will, mind. That's not how God designs you. If you let your train get out of order like that, your world will be up and down, up and down. You'll go from high faith moments to low despairing moments because feeling is driving everything in you. David's not being driven by his feelings. I believe if we could have interviewed him at this moment for 2020, he would say, my life is horrible. It is horrific. I think I'm going to die. Well, David, how do you feel about God? You ask the wrong question. I don't care what I feel. I know what I know. My God is good. And He does hear me. Whether I feel like He does or not. Feelings come at the end of the train. They are pulled by the will of man and by the mind of man. Feelings are at the end of the train. If you're in a tough spot physically... Don't let feelings drive the train. If you're at a tough spot relationally, in your marriage, with your children, with a boss, with a condition at work, don't let feelings drive the train. You'll end in a train wreck. It runs out of control. Put feelings in the right place by the Spirit of God at the end of the train. So many of our lives are roller coasters. And what God intends is a straight. Steady, incline. 
Not the ups and downs, but the steady. Not the climbing to the highest of heights so that we might suffer the lowest of lows, but whether we're in a hard time or a good time, steady. Steady, inclined towards the heavenlies. This is a prayer that calls on God based on His character, not based on my feelings. So he goes into another description, a description of his mental suffering. Verse 9, O Lord, all of my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. You notice in the first section, he was focused on his physical affliction. But here in verse 10, he transitions to talk about what's going on. Uh, verse nine, uh, at the end of verse 9, verse 10, he begins to focus on what's going on in his mental state. My heart, my heart throbs, my strength fails, and the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. I have no joy. You, you often hear people say this about Christians. Like when I see some of you, when you walk in here, I know without you saying anything, it's a hard time. It's, it's in the eyes. I know you're struggling. I know you're fighting something. I can just look at your countenance and know it's falling. This is what David's speaking of. My heart is throbbing. It's pounding. It's not a physical pain. It's not a heart attack that he describes. It's a, it's a heart attack spiritually and emotionally that he's experiencing. My strength is going away. My light, my countenance is downcast. It's almost gone from my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin. Stand far off. Now, if David in the palace with all of his court and all of his mighty men and all of his family feels alone, don't you think you and I can feel alone? I mean, David is a king. If he wants company, he just calls them and says, Come hang out with me and like it. He's a king. People do what kings tell them to do. But notice, Sometimes it's not about how close people are to you, but it's about the condition of your mind and your heart. He's downcast. He's worn out. He's tired. And he feels as if he's lost all of his companions. Verse 12, those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. His mind is bound up with the things that are being done around him, the traps that are being laid for him, the plots and schemes to take the throne from him but I am like a deaf man I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth he's saying that although they're plotting and I hear those plots I don't pay them any regard it's not that he can't hear he's not physically deaf nor mute but it's rather that he's holding his silence now we have other occasions like this in David's life historical occasions when he's on the run from Absalom and he's leaving Jerusalem, he goes by the tent of a man who was the servant of Saul. And that man curses him and flings rocks at him. And David's response is total silence. He takes the rebuke. He remains silent. Even so much that his own men say, respond, defend yourself. And he says, no. For if this is from the Lord, then shall I rebuke the Lord? And if it's not, then the Lord will handle that, not me. Here David displays that kind of resolve in the face of sickness, in the face of mental anguish. Because of his own sin, he takes it quietly. 
He's deaf to those outside and alive to his heart's alive to those things which are internally being convicted in his heart. He doesn't care what people outside are saying about him. What he knows is what he inside is feeling and hearing. He knows he's in sin. He knows he's wrong. He doesn't need anybody else to tell him. Verse 14, I've become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. Here's his prayer in 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Verse 15 directly ties back to 37. It's the only reason I can see that these two psalms come back to back. It's the only reason I can understand that 37 and 38 go close together. There's no historical reason for it as far as I know. But it is an answer to what David said to do in verse 34 of chapter 37. Wait for the Lord and keep His way and He will exalt you to inherit the land. Wait for the Lord. And David says, O Lord, I wait. It's you, O Lord my God, who will answer. I don't need to answer those who are charging me with wrong. I don't need to answer my feelings. I don't need to answer my physical suffering. I'm waiting on your answer, Lord. So many times in the Christian walk, you and I are quick to answer. We're so undone that we think whenever we face a struggle, we don't deserve it. Everybody's quick to put themselves in the category of Job when bad times hit. I think it would be wise for us to consider we might be in Psalm 38. That we need to be quiet before the Lord and see if it's not our own doing that has brought us to this moment and this day. And stop exalting our righteousness before God like, oh, I'm on display like Job. I'm going to glorify God in the worst of moments. We may need to hush before the Lord and sit quietly in repentance and plead with Him to reveal our sin and heal our sickness. Some of us are not in these moments because we're meant to be showing grace in the sense of glorious grace, but rather we're to be seeing we're here to display God's seriousness and His holiness and His refusal to accept sin as okay. When's the last time you heard anybody say, after coming back from a sickness, a near-death experience, When's the last time you heard anybody in our churches say, when told, oh, isn't God so good? And they say, yes, He is. I tell you what, I deserve to die. The reason I deserve to die was because of X, Y, Z. But God was gracious. Compare it to the number of times when someone's healed from a dramatic disease. They say, yeah, I tell you, I just wanted to glory God. It's like, stick my chest out. Here's my badge of honor. All I'm saying is we might need to consider Psalm 38 and Psalm 6 and be humble before the Lord before we put ourselves in Job's category. Consider it, church. Whether you're suffering under the hand of God's discipline, don't dismiss it as Him displaying His glorious grace in the triumphant sense. We're triumphalist. We, we think... We think too highly of ourselves. That's all I'm saying. I do. Next, we get the description of his enemies. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. 
For I am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. There it is again. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I allow, I follow after good. So even in his sickness, he gives God the glory by saying, these things I've brought on myself. It's my sinfulness that's brought this on. I'm sorry because of it. He bows the knee before a holy God and a good God and says, God, spare me, not because of me, but because you see. Verse 21 22, as we close, it is so good that God doesn't leave us in this state of open regret over our sin, but He gives us the answer. Verse 21, Do not forsake me, O Lord, is what Eric mentioned. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me. O Lord of my salvation. In Jonah 2, 9, we get a similar prayer. Jonah in the belly of the whale says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. And in Matthew 1, 21, a description of Jesus' coming, and the angel says to them in verse 21, speaking to uh, the parents, speaking to, speaking to Joseph, the angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now I want to close by saying this. Do I believe that some suffer physically because of sin? Absolutely. I believe it is without question that it is a fact that people suffer because of sin. But listen to me. We have a Savior. What David looked into the future and saw dimly, we have seen the full glory of it. The display of God's salvation in Jesus Christ is no mystery to us. So if you're a Christian and you're suffering, you're suffering physically, you're suffering mentally, you're suffering spiritually, come to Jesus. Renew communion. Confess sin. Repent. Don't run past sin falling on some phony grace that says, well, God, doesn't, God doesn't care that I sin. Your sanctification matters to God. He will use whatever means possible and needed to bring you into the image of Christ. The least of which is physical ailment. He's constantly pruning us and preparing us to be like Jesus. So Jesus is the answer. Not in an, only in an eternal sense, He is that, but in an immediate sense, Jesus is the answer. Run to Him and cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. Renew communion through confession and repentance and a call for His coming to you in a near and special way. 
lost man, woman, child, the least of your concern is a physical sickness. That's the least you will ever suffer. The worst day of your life in this physical life, if you die without Christ, is minuscule. It's not worth comparing to the suffering that's coming. David ends his prayer by saying, don't withdraw from me, but save me. Because David knows, even if I die from this furious infection, as long as he saves my soul, I'm, I'm okay. The worst day I've suffered here is nothing in comparison to that eternal glory. And likewise, the worst day of your suffering here is not worth comparing to your day, your average normal day in suffering in hell. You cannot be saved from your sins without some very basic truths hitting you in the, in, in the heart, in the face, in the eye, and coming to your eyes and to your ears. So hear this. You must know who God is. You cannot be saved without a basic knowledge of who God is. God is not just good. He is good. But He is equally just. He's gracious and He's equally wrathful. He's merciful and He's equally holy. You can't be saved with a Santa Claus Jesus or a Santa Claus God. You must know Him, who He is. At the very base, that's one. Two, you must know who you are. You cannot be saved as long as you hold on to any glimmer of hope that you might be in any way good in front of God. He will not save you. A 99% plea to Jesus and a 1% I think I'm okay in my flesh is eternal damnation. The only way you are saved is to say I am 100% lost, fallen, helpless, hopeless, dying, dead, I need Jesus. That's the only cry he hears. You must know who God is. You must know who you are. You're not kind of bad. You're not almost good. You are totally and absolutely dead in your sins and trespasses, lost man and woman. And you can't be saved until you believe that in your very heart. I believe Millions are going to hell today because we refuse to tell people how bad they are. And because we continue to act like God is not just. So you got to know those two things. you got to know a third thing. you got to know that God saves sinners, not righteous people, through Jesus. you got to know who God is. you got to know who you are. And then you have to know the only way of salvation is Jesus. You can't, listen, you can't get saved on Pascal's wager. You know what that is? If I'm wrong about Christianity and the world is right, there is no God and we all just cease to exist, then I'm going to go in the dust and it's going to be over. But if they're wrong and Christianity is right, then I lose everything. So I'll believe in Jesus and be saved. No. You can't get saved that way. That's not how Pascal meant his wager. He never said that's how people were saved. He simply said, think about it. What do you have the most to lose in? 
You can't get saved, in other words, saying, well, functionally, Jesus is pretty good. I think I'll take him over Buddha or Hinduism or New Age or atheism or agnosticism. Jesus is a little bit better, so I'll take him over this. No, it must be that Jesus is everything. He's either everything or he's nothing. You can't get saved believing that you're getting fire insurance. Oh, well, I, I just don't want to die and go to hell, so I'll believe. Yes, uh, Lord, forgive me of my sin and save me, and, and I'll try to be good, and thank you for Jesus. Amen. Okay, I'm good. Let's get baptized. Move. No. No. You can't get saved like that. You have to, get, you, you have to believe this is the pearl of great price. This is the treasure buried in the field for which a man sells everything he has so he can have the pearl, so he can have the treasure. What Psalm 38 is designed to do is to wake us from our slumber that we know who God is, we know who we are, and we know the solution. Salvation comes from the Lord. His name is Jesus. So I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you as your pastor. If you're struggling, if you're in sickness, Wrestle with it. Just go. What do you have? Listen, I will say it this way. What do you have to lose? What are you, what's, what's, what's going to hurt you to go before God and be honest about your sin and exam, let Him examine your heart? But trust me, Christian, you have the loss of communion if you don't do that. You won't lose your salvation. You just won't have communion with Him. Secondly, I'm pleading with you, lost man and woman, don't play games with God. He is just and holy, just like He is gracious and merciful. And you are as bad as the Bible says you are. And Jesus is the only hope. Salvation belongs to the Lord.